today we're going to talk about water and we're going to bring on a good friend of mine who started a company called New Water. And we want to talk about one, obviously the importance of water, two, how he's gone about founding founding this company. Um, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different topics. Cyrus, welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you for having me on. This is actually really exciting. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm pumped to have you on. And and for me as well, to, to learn a bit more about your story. So the first thing is, could you tell us a bit more about one yourself and, and where the interest in water came from? Yes. Yeah, so a little bit about myself. So I started working for Apple in fresh out of university, 2010. Spent about five years working for them in London. And then they asked me to move out to the UAE. So I spent two further years working for them in Dubai. And then I moved to a private family office and I spent a lot of time with them working in, in the US. And that's why I saw canned water on the shelf for the first time. And I've always been one of these kind of water snobs, if you like, you know, so oh, water tastes different. And people say, water doesn't taste different. I'm like, no, Fiji water tastes different to Evian, which tastes different to Icelandic. Because the Novo water tastes all the same. So I always had this, you know, tuned in to like how water tasted, but never understood why it would taste differently. So when I bought water in a can in the US, I started looking into the reasons as to why you would even have water in a can. There's a sustainability aspect of it. There's the health aspect versus drinking water from a plastic bottle. And I thought, okay, this is super interesting. Nobody's doing it out here in the GCC. And per capita, the UAU ranks eighth in the world for consumption of water from plastic bottles. So there's a huge market for it. Um, so new water started coming up to two years ago now. Um, and that's really where the idea of let's put water in a can, let's bring it out to a market which is, you know, ripe for opportunity. And yeah, it's been a fun ride. So yeah, and tell us a bit about new water. What is it and um and and why is it important? I think now you touched a bit on uh, on canned water and the sustainability yeah. element of it. Like what else is there to it? Specifically new water. Yeah, so so new water is essentially mineral water aluminium can and it's a sustainable aluminium can. The reason we say it's sustainable is because 75% of all aluminium produced is still in circulation today. So what that means is that they are constantly, it's infinitely recyclable. It's the marketing tagline that we use. Whereas in comparison to plastic, it can only be recycled about two or three times before the structure of the plastic is no longer fit for use as a beverage container. Uh, so if you were to go to your supermarket today, you would find that an average uh, can you have on the shelf has about 70% recycled content whereas a plastic bottle has 3% recycled content inside it. So aluminium as a beverage container is one of the more sustainable ones, definitely in comparison to plastic. So we have that sustainability angle to it as well. Um, we also have, we use mineral water. And for us, mineral water is a key aspect of our brand. We would never divert and use distilled water or filtered water. We want to really push the message that water quality is important. Um, and that's what we're trying to do with our product. We have a lot of messaging on our social media about the quality of the water, the level of calcium it has inside it, magnesium, bicarbonate. And that's something you don't see with local waters because they use a process of desalination to get water and put it into their cans. Okay, so a few things on that. So the first thing is, why is it bad to drink water from a plastic bottle? Mm -hmm. Like, let's touch on that first, actually. Yeah, so... The main reason is microplastics. So what you see happening, and I think 
the education around that is starting to happen in the UAE. It's already there in the US and it's already there in Europe. So what happens is when you leave a plastic bottle, especially in sunlight in a, in a climate that we have in the GCC, that plastic starts to break down and that breakdown of plastic then seeps into the water. So what you find is that you are consuming microplastics by drinking water from a plastic bottle. Whereas with an aluminum can, actually the sunlight never touches the inside of the can because it's a sealed unit. So you don't have this problem of anything seeping into the water. So studies have found that even babies today are born with trace amounts of microplastics inside them simply from birth, right? And that for me is a shocking statistic because it shows that by consuming even food from plastic containers, you can get trace amounts of plastics inside your body. And, you know, there are studies showing that it can lead to various forms of cancer and birth defects as well. So that's when I saw that statistic, I saw we have to do something about this and really push education about moving away from single-use plastic containers as a beverage. I, uh, I was listening to Joe Rogan, and one of the things that they said on this episode was that the average American consumer yeah. in one year consumes enough microplastics to create a credit card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you exactly. hear that? Yeah, so we, we've pushed out a few times, and every time we put that onto our social media, that is the one post or one story that we push out that gets the most attention. Because when you think about it, it's one plastic credit card every single week. Which week. is cr- every week, which is crazy. I mean, if you were to take out your plastic credit card now, it's five grams. It works out to be five grams of plastic. So if you were to take out a credit card now, I think you are consuming that every single week just from your consumption of water from plastic bottles. It's mad. I mean, it's honestly crazy. And if I were to say, eat, I mean, it would be as crazy as eat that credit card or drink water from an aluminum can, which would you prefer to do? Yeah. No one's going to you know, be eating that microplastic because the education these big beverage giants dominate the space. They do not allow these kind of messages to be pushed out because if they were, people would start really in their troughs moving away from drinking water from plastic bottles. Yeah, and I wonder like, I don't know if you know this, but like I wonder how you can get rid of the existing plastics in your body and then start transitioning to becoming more mindful. Yeah, I think, you know, the way to do it is just, there isn't necessarily a way to get rid of it in terms of a, a, any sort of procedures or anything. But I think if you stop your consumption of food and beverages from plastic containers, you will, you know, your body will start flushing those microplastics out. Um, but it's very difficult to do, especially in the GCC, because there's always going to be a market for your one dirham, 1.5 liter bottle of water. Yeah. So because of that, you know, people find it difficult. You know, they have these five gallon tanks at home as well. I come from the UK. So in the UK, you're able to open the faucet, put a cup underneath it and drink that water. Most people in the GCC don't have that luxury. So they revert to drinking water from plastic bottles. So, you know, new water really is created as that sustainable on-the-go alternative to allow people to actually pick up a can and have the health aspects of drinking water from an aluminum can, as well as getting quality mineral water as well. So let's touch on the importance of, of I suppose, the ingredients within yeah. new water. Yeah. I... Um, you know, we had Dave from Yamantra on before. Yeah, uh, he, sp- he spoke a lot about um, like dead water. Yeah. So basically like the water that we're drinking, you know, specifically like the filtered water mm. here. And I mean, mm. I'm guilty of this because I have a filtration system at home Yeah. Um, that you just don't get the right amount of minerals that you would get from something like new water. Yeah. So can you speak on that a little bit more? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think the best way to describe it... Um, I don't know if you've ever seen these athletes, endurance athletes, when they sweat, 
there's a bit of a white patch when their sweat dries up. Actually, what that is, is the minerals they've sweated from their body out, right? So what happens, how do you replenish those minerals? You're not going to replenish it by drinking your local desalinated or filtered bottled water. What's desalinated? So we can touch about desalination because that's a whole process. That's a whole topic. Yeah. Um, but it's basically bottled water. So if you see anything that's got bottled water or drinking water on its label, that means it's gone through a process of filtration that the water has no minerals inside, close to no minerals inside it. So actually when you are sweating, you're exercising, and you need to actually replenish or hydrate, you are not getting quality hydration by drinking that bottled water. So you need to drink a beverage like new water that's high in mineral content to replenish those minerals. And Humantra is a great option as well, actually, because if you are drinking those big 1.5 liter bottles, you can open one of the sachets, you know, pour it into a bottle and you, you essentially add the minerals into that mineralless water. Yeah. And how did you go about like the composition of, of what you've included in here? So, yeah, so we don't, we don't do it after the fact. So our uh, source of mineral water is natural. So actually it comes from a natural spring, which already has its composition of mineral water. So it's filtered down through a volcanic process. So through that process, all these minerals are really uh, drawn through and gets into the water. So we have 886 TDS in our water. So TDS is total dissolved solids. And that's really what you need to be looking for when you are picking what type of mineral water to go for. Um, the higher the TDS, essentially the more minerals inside it. Mm. Um, and there are some, what's becoming really popular in the US are, are water sommeliers where they actually find really high content mineral water and they do a bit of a water taste testing for you. And the higher the mineral content, the water does have a taste. Some a little bit more salty, some taste a little bit heavier on the palate. Um, and that really has to do with the composition of the water, how those minerals actually affect you and you would find your local desalinated water has about a quarter of the minerals that new water has. They're around 150 to 200 TDS, um, which is super low. And what you have to use is products like Humantra to actually add minerals into it afterwards. Yeah, and how what's your TDS in, in uh, 886. So we are one of the highest mineral content um, brands in the UAE. There are some brands as well in the US that have two, three times the mineral content, but what we found is when doing um, taste testings, that that is too heavy a taste for the consumer out here to be able to switch to. Because in this region, people are used to drinking that bottled distilled water. So something that has 2000 TDS inside it is too much of a change for them in too short a period of time to be able to actually say, actually, let me switch to this brand. Yeah. We have just enough minerals inside it to make it high quality, quality mineral water, but not enough to say it tastes different or it tastes funny. Yeah, especially if you're drinking in like large volumes, exactly. right? Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. And so what what sets you as New Water apart from, you know, the other brands? I mean, I think there's a few things. Um, premium water is obviously the first one. And we would never move away from the idea of actually having premium water in our product. Um, our lid on our can is resealable because we found that the consumers prefer two things above all else. First is the price point. So as a premium brand, it has to fit in the right price range so consumers aren't turned off by the price point. And that we've done. And the second is the convenience. So the consumer will always want convenience above all else. So when you have a plastic bottle that you can open and close, they want the same benefits on a can because they will not, some people will switch to cans, but not everyone unless they have the same convenience of being able to open and close it. 
So our lid provides that. So now when you have our can next to a plastic bottle, the decision-making skills are really easy for the consumer to be able to pick up. It's actually, it's healthier, better for the environment, better for the body, has the same convenience as a plastic bottle. So you can make that switch a lot easier. Um, the second for us is our brand and our brand values. So as a brand, we really push the message of impact. We've done a lot of work with UNICEF in the last 12 months, giving back to aid, giving to their relief funds. Um, for every box we sell, we plant one tree as well, which we're super proud of as well. Um, and that's something I found, especially in the last few years, consumers are being more conscious about what brands they support, um, where they spend their money. And I think a lot of that has to do with social media because social media has shone a light um, on brands and the messaging that they're pushing out there. So for us, I think as a water company, especially in this region, we have people know what they're coming to when they get new water. So we stand for something, we have a voice, and that for us is super important. So in comparison to the other brands, when you look at what they're pushing out in terms of messaging, it's just product, product, product. And that for us, of course, product is important, but what we stand for as a company as well will stand the test of time in the future. And how do you feel like sustainability, for instance, is, is like, how do you feel people in this region are in terms of, you know, their viewpoint on sustainability? Do you feel it's something that's becoming a bit more prevalent than it was before? I, I think there's still some work to be done. I think in comparison to Europe, UK and the US, the UAE still has some room for improvement. Um, I think with the project like Dubai Can, really what you've seen is they've started pushing this message around sustainability within the region. But there's a lot of work to be done around recycling. Um, so in the UK, recycling is mandatory. So you have to actually separate your garbage into different color bins. And if you don't, you actually get a fine imposed. And that here for me was a bit of a shock because I would come here and they don't impose any fines. You don't have different color bins. And that was a bit of a culture shock for me. Um, and in Germany, what they do, which is really interesting, and this has become part of their culture, is they actually put a surcharge on every can, glass, and bottle. So actually, when you go back and recycle it, you get that surcharge refunded back to you. So if you were to go shopping in a German supermarket, you would see all these consumers lining up with glass bottles and cans, putting them back into these machines to get their credit back. And this is part of their culture now. And that allows them actually to encourage recycling and people now do it without even a second thought. You know, that for me is still a, a bit of a weird concept because we don't do that in the UK. But for my family that lives in Germany, it's just second nature to them. And I would hope that soon within the UAE, these kind of initiatives can start to roll out to really encourage recycling and encourage a message around sustainability. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Holland and, and what you are talking about now, yeah. I grew up with like yeah. 25 years ago when I was, you know, five, six years old, going to the supermarket, you would put your plastic bottle or glass bottle or whatever in like, like on this like moving band yeah. <laughs> and you would get coins back, yeah. right? And like that was for us, like it's a normal, it's a normal thing. Like it was a normal way of life. And I think it's those countries that have started so early with the process of, you know, also like consumer education, right? It's like Huge that, it's, that it's important. Yeah. Um, we as well, we moved in 2004 and it was like, oh, there's no, no separation. We show everything recycling. in one bin. Yeah. And what we find, you know, in my building, the people I see that are actually going above and beyond and because there is a recycling station in most buildings, yeah. but you're not encouraged to do it. The people I see who are recycling are mainly Europeans. 
Why? Because it's part of their culture. They've been doing it for so many years now that when they move to a new country, they just continue doing it. Um, what I would hope to see that it actually becomes some level of government legislation that you have to do it. Um, and once you start doing that, you will see the infrastructure to enable recycling will start to improve off the back of that. Um, but, you know, in the last 12 months, I think huge, huge leaps and bounds have been made around message of sustainability from the government level. Um, and that's really people are becoming more switched on and attuned to what sustainability actually means. Mm. Um, and that's been great to see. Now, do you see it as well from a business standpoint? Like, are there, do you see more and more companies focusing on this as their like core message, similar to what you guys are doing? Yeah, you see it, but you don't necessarily see it with a level of truth. Um, you know, one great example, don't know if we're allowed to call out brands, but oh. <laughs> yeah, um, Aquafina has started producing water in a can, which is fantastic. And they actually sponsored the expo event. What they have is Aquafina plastic bottles sitting right next to their cans. So, you know, on one side, they're pushing the message of sustainability and no plastics. And then right next to that product they have, they are one of the largest producers of plastic bottles within the region. So as a brand, how sustainable are you? I would encourage those brands because they have the scale, the volumes and the revenue to be able to do it, to actually look into finding more sustainable ways of producing their beverages. Cans are fantastic. They can also look into other ways of doing it as well. So I think brands are starting to do it. You have to filter out to see which brands are doing it from a really genuine stance and actually believe it and which are doing it because everyone else is doing it and they're just mm. following suit. Um, one great brand, you know, Emirates Airline have said within the next 12 months, they're going to ban all single-use plastics on board flights. And that's a huge step. Um, they produce 250,000 meals a day. Wow. for their in-flight catering. So to say that we're going to ban single-use plastics, that's a huge undertaking. And I feel once a huge brand like Emirates Airlines, they're a staple for the, you know, for the Emirates. Um, once they start to do it, I feel all businesses, hospitality and, and um, people in the region will understand why these brands are doing it. And it has a more of a genuine stance as, as to the reasons. Yeah. You have created a brand that's, impactful and obviously has benefits to both the consumer and to the environment yeah what have been some of your challenges in in setting up one a business in general mm. um but two like a business like this right because this this is not this is a niche product in yeah. a massive market huge market the the beverage industry is infamous for being really difficult to penetrate, especially as a startup. You know, when you're a startup, especially if you're a self-funded startup and you don't have outside VC investment, it is very difficult to get shelf space, to get visibility, because these larger beverage companies essentially lock you out from that shelf space because that shelf space is finite. And what they do, they pay for that space. So if you want to go in as a startup, the supermarkets will say, well, you can be on this shelf, but brand X has paid this amount. You have to pay the same amount to be here. And as a startup, that really becomes unattainable for you to be able to get on the shelf. So that's why if you go to your lo local supermarket, you'll see startups in other categories, but you won't necessarily see startups going in into the beverage industry. Um, so that's been really difficult, but we've been lucky in the sense that we're quite strong in social media. Our marketing is quite good. We have some great partnerships, which we've done over the last 12 months that have allowed us to get the visibility within the region so people can actually buy into our brand. 
Um, starting a business in the UAE has been a bit of a roller coaster. I mean, I was new to it, so it was my first business. Um, it comes with its own challenges. You know, for me, starting an LLC in the UK, you can do it from the comfort of your laptop with 20 pounds, 100 dirhams. Um, but in the UAE, you can pay anywhere in the region of seven to 20,000 dirhams, depending on how you structure your company, to have an LLC set up, visas on the license. And that for most entrepreneurs and for most startup businesses can make or break their business. And I've spoken to so many entrepreneurs who have an idea and they want to start. And when they look into the cost of setting up a license out here, that immediately puts them off because they just don't have the capital to be able to do that. Um, and the process is not one that you can navigate on your own because the systems are so complicated. So you actually need to pay someone to be able to help you navigate that. And this is a yearly fee, which you have to continue to pay. So I think until these hurdles are overcome, this, the space in the Middle East, or especially in the GCC region, for setting up companies, it will become a barrier for a lot of startups. Um, even something as simple as setting up a bank account. It took us six months to get a bank account mm. because they asked, okay, how many millions of dollars of revenue would you expect to be doing in your first year? No, aspirationally, that's great. <laughs> but no startup in their first year would look to do a million dollars, especially if you're self-funded. So that for me was like, man, people really do not understand the idea of startups in this region. And when you're speaking to these large banks, they just don't, they don't look to support you in, in getting set up and getting up and running. They're not offering you a credit facility or anything. So there is actually no exposure to them as a risk. Um, so I think until those issues are overcome, and I can see steps have been taken in the right way to be able to do that. There's a big barrier of entry for a lot of, you know, young entrepreneurs wanting to start a business here. Yeah. So it's like a lot of the administrative exactly. elements of starting up a business yeah. rather than like the actual other issues or struggles that an entrepreneur would face. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so what other struggles have you faced in setting up this company and, and how have you overcome those? Because I think uh, obviously, you know, a huge part of being an entrepreneur is, is uncertainty and, mm. and not knowing what's going to happen next. But like, what's that been like for you? Um, I think the best way when I describe it to people, I don't know if you've ever been to the circus and you've seen that guy that stands in the middle and he's got all these plates spinning and he's running around, you know, plates spinning on sticks and he's running around trying to stop one plate falling. That's what it feels like to be an entrepreneur or to have your own business because you are constantly running around, you know, moving every single plate, waiting for one to break and fall. And you have to, you know, every single day is a new challenge. Every single day is a new fire that you have to put out. And I think that's part of the fun of it. It's a certain type of personality that thrives and enjoys being in that space. Um, I tend to hyper-isolate on issues, which is not great for my personal life. It's great for business, but not necessarily great for personal life because if I have an issue, I will lock myself off from everything and resolve that issue in some way, somehow. So I think, you know, that's how I tend to overcome problems. It's not the healthiest way of doing it, and I'm aware of that. But uh, wait, take me through that process. Like, let's say that you have, like, an issue or a challenge that you yeah. need to basically, like, think through. You would... You know, oh, I would I would lock myself from 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 friends and family, and just basically isolate until that problem is fixed. And I'm the kind of person that I will get three four hours of sleep a night because I have this issue just running through my head. So I can't really, you know, I find it difficult to be able to separate the balance between personal life and work life. Mm. And I've had that even from a young age when I was working at Apple. I remember I had a manager 
turn around and say to me, you need to be able to switch off when you go home. You know, you can't take your work back home with you because then when you get older, it's going to affect you. And I always have him, you know, that scenario playing in the back of my head. Um, but it's, it's just part of my personality, unfortunately. So it's great in terms of a business aspect because you just push the business forward constantly, but it can really have a detrimental impact on, you know, your mental health and your, your you know, your personal life as well. So there is, you know, there's two folds to that. Yeah. And are there any habits that you have like throughout the day that also help you deal with whatever pressure the, you know, the life of an entrepreneur throws at you? Yeah. I mean, I think we've spoken about this before. I have real trouble sleeping actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I can, I probably get, four hours of quality sleep a night and I've tried everything every trick you can imagine and we spoke about a few of these tricks before doesn't work and I think it's just because when you have so many things running through your head and you know that you have to wake up in the morning and tackle them you just want to get a head start on it um so one thing I've done you know even since I was younger I wake up really early so I wake up about 5 30 every morning and I don't even need an alarm anymore to wake up at 5 30 no matter what time I go to sleep I just automatically wake up at that time. Which is great. Yeah, which is great for me because that morning period of my day, I have the best clarity. I go to the gym early in the morning. I get a run in. I start my day well. I can get my messages done. And that period is when most people are asleep or just starting their day. So you can get a bit of a head start on everything. Um, and that allows me really to plan the day out, plan the week out, see what needs to be done. And then you have the rest of the day really to be able to organize yourself. Um, but that for me is something, a habit that I feel, you know, now I'm 31. I feel that that's a habit that, you know, should hopefully be with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. I think getting this head start on people is a, yeah, it's a huge one. And I encourage one. anyone, you know, anyone that some people prefer to do most of their work in the evenings, but if you have the ability just to wake up an extra hour every morning, you have an hour head start on everyone else. Um, and I, I listen to a lot of these, you know, podcasts or interviews that they do with, you know, successful entrepreneurs, and they all have a habit. Most of them have a habit of waking up early in the morning. So there has to be some level of correlation between waking up early and being able to get, you know, chunks of work done as well. Yeah. I mean, the big one is right that you're, <clears throat> you're in control of your time. So yeah, absolutely. when you wake up at 5.30 and the rest of the world wakes up at 7.38, yeah. like one of the things that happens is you have two hours mm. of silence before the world wakes up and then tries to get your attention. Yeah. Right. Because as soon as you leave the house. Oh yeah. It's chaos. It's chaos. <laughs> it's like, there's no, like you're not in control anymore. Yeah. And this is why I'm such a big believer in morning routines because like yeah. that is like your golden hour where exactly. you're completely in control of that time. And once you finish that and you open your phone or your email or your whatever, yeah. anything can happen. Yeah. And you're constantly pulled, you know, running a business is there's you can't structure your day you can try to structure your day but your day will never go that way so you're poured into so many different things from logistics to accounting to you know social media and something goes wrong you have to deal with a customer you have to deal with a supplier so you know that morning period allows you to really get what you need to do without having those distractions within your day because once the day starts and everyone else starts coming online, it's just chaos. You know, you can never really sit and focus on something for a couple of hours without being pulled into a hundred different situations. And how do you, so, I mean, I know that you are, you know, running so many different aspects of the business. Like how do you stay organized and how do you stay productive? So I have a, I always have a to-do list and I've, I, even when I was younger in the mornings, it was funny 
when I was younger, I didn't really have anything apart from go to school or college, you know, pack your bag the night before. But I would always write the same to-do list every single morning. And I would say most of the year, it was exactly the same four or five things. But then I would tear that note up. I'd write a new note. It'd be the same four or five things every morning. So that for me allows me to set my day up, know what needs to be done. Because you can, if you don't have that level of organization at the beginning of your day, you can get to the end of your day and you've forgotten to come back to someone, reply to an email, call someone. So having that level of structure lets me get things done and say, actually, well, I can't spend two hours doing this because I need to do X, Y, Z. So that helps me. I know other people work in different ways, but that for me has always been a big help, having a bit of a to-do list. For and day. you write this on paper? Or you put on it on, on my notes on my phone. If you see my notes on my phone, I'm looking at it now. I've got something like 200 notes. <laughs> it's chaos. Most of them at three o'clock in the morning as well, which is not... Oh <laughs> which my God. Is, yeah. Because in the middle of the night, I come up with an idea or I think about something, or I, I've perhaps forgotten to do something, and I can't you know, go back to sleep unless I get this idea out. I wake up, put it on my notes, you know, close my phone again, go back to sleep. Which is so. important, because you wake up the next morning, you've forgotten it. Otherwise. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's why you know, all these, and some of my, I don't want to say best ideas, but some of the craziest stuff we've done as a brand in terms of social media and content has you know, come up to me in the middle of the night. Um, which is weird. You hear that a lot with uh, stand-up comedians. They 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 have a notepad next to their book. Yeah. And they'll wake up, yeah. write down their joke, and then like yeah, and artists as well. Artists have the same kind of, you know, they come up with lyrics or a riff in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's interesting how yeah. that how that works, right? Like yeah, I yeah, wonder. Yeah, I don't know how it works. There there must be some psychological way that maybe your brain is you know processing something and it comes up with an idea. Like, do you consider yourself a creative person? Not, I've had to become a little bit more creative. I wouldn't consider, you know, if before New Wars, I wouldn't have considered myself a creative person. Um, but I think when you start a startup, you end up having to become a creative person because you can't necessarily afford to hire graphic designers or pay an agency and all these things. So I think the best startups are the one where, you know, a small team of people does a hundred different things. Because then you actually have an appreciation when you get to scale and then you can afford to get a graphic designer and a social media person that allows you to have an appreciation for what they're doing and also be able to, you know, push out content which you feel is relevant to your brand. You have a bit more of an attuned connection to the brand once you start doing everything yourself. True. I once spoke to a CEO of um, a pretty big company and I asked them, I'm like, what's your specialty? Like, like, yeah. what did you grow like when throughout your career? Like, what was the main thing that you were really good at? He was like, the main thing I was good at is that I knew twenty percent of everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. like, he would know twenty percent of accounting, twenty percent of you know marketing, twenty percent of sales, twenty percent of this. So one, you can never get screwed. Yeah, exactly. Right, like, like he would understand the figures. He would yeah. understand strategy. He would understand all this kind of stuff, um, and that's what. Like essentially leaders of these big companies. Yeah. You have to be that. You have like to. You have to understand that. And that's what I've seen. I worked for a really well-respected um, chairman and CEO of a company. And he knew something about everything. His background was predominantly finance. But he knew something about everything from technology to aerospace to engine design to, I mean, design, art, architecture. There wasn't one thing which he didn't have valid input. 
And he would walk into a room and people who were the experts in their field in this particular topic, he would add value to that conversation. And that was something for me that I realized, actually, you have to have that ability to know every aspect of your business because at some stage, you have to hire someone that's 10 times better than you. You know, you cannot have this ego say, well, I don't want to hire someone better than me or that knows more than me because then your business will not succeed and grow. So in order to do that, you have to have an appreciation for what they do and have an understanding of actually what goes into the job and what goes into their role. So I think most successful CEOs have that skill of being able to pick up, you know, big bites of information. Mm. Now, having started this business and, and being a couple of years in, like what, what type of advice would you give to, I don't want to even say entrepreneurs, like mm. someone with an idea very much worth pursuing, also in best interest of the world, basically, yeah. like something very impactful. What advice do you have for someone like them who's just getting started? Um, I think the, the best skill I would recommend is learn how to sell your story and sell. Because no matter what business you go into, whether it be a product, SaaS business, tech, you are always at some stage selling whether it be to get investment, whether it be to get your product on the shelf. Um, so I think that ability, and I've seen a lot of incredibly bright people that don't have the ability to convey their message. And their concepts don't get off the shelf because they're just geniuses, but don't have the ability to speak correctly. And that for me, I think is a big thing to be able to learn how to sell. And you can only learn that by putting yourself in situations you're not comfortable in. So if it comes to public speaking, most people don't necessarily enjoy it. But if you go up and put yourself in that situation, after two or three times, you start to build a rhythm and a flow to it. And I think that can help most businesses, especially in the early stages to, to get off the ground. Yeah. And what other kind of like not skills, but like, so selling is something that's very important. massive. Yeah, huge because you're always selling. How would stage. you like, how would you learn that outside of so public speaking is obviously important? Like, yeah. What other sort of tools or resources would you tap into? Yeah, I, I think there isn't a resource necessary that I would go to. I think this is one of those skills that you just have to put yourself in the deep end to be able to learn it. Because your first, let's say your pitch for investment, it's not going to be great. And then they always say, actually, when you're going for investment, the first two or three investment meetings, go for the ones which you don't necessarily, those are the trial and error ones. Rehearse your pitch a little bit, rehearse your deck a little bit better. So the ones that you really want, leave them towards the end because you will refine that process. So I just think by going, and it's not an easy thing to do because some people don't like knocking on the door and, and pitching or they don't like emailing three or four times and you know really pushing their message out there. But I think when you're a young entrepreneur and that's something that you're passionate about, you have to be able to sell your story. And storytelling is a big part of any brand, especially these days. Um, you know, working for Apple for seven years really helped me appreciate the message of storytelling. If you look about when they first launched their iPad, had so many great technologies, big screen, battery, camera, all these things. But what they showed in their advertisement was a young kid connected to his grandma on the other side of the world. Mm. That tells a great story, right? So they weren't saying, but look at the quality of this camera and look at the Wi-Fi connection, all these different things. They were telling a story that actually allowed you to connect with that product. So storytelling is a big thing as well. Refine your story, refine the reason as to why you're doing something because people will buy into an idea 
if they feel passionate about it. So your brand has to have a level of messaging and personality, I think, as well. And I think as a water brand, you don't see many water brands that have personality. There's a great brand actually in the US called Liquid Death. They've got a crazy personality, but it's a personality. It's not for everyone, but they have market dominance out there in the canned water space because they've created a brand that if you go to their social pages or if you buy their product, you know what you're going to get. You know what you're going to feel. And I think that's really important when starting any business. Get your story down. Yeah, and people, what I realized is people people believe in um, founders that believe in their product. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So like if, if you speak very passionately about new water yeah. and it shows that you believe in your own product and, and it shows that you believe what you've created, yeah. then people are going to buy into that as well, which yeah. I think is also a huge skill set. I, I mean, with, with, with my business, like I've probably told the story of how it was founded and what it is over a thousand times. Oh, easily. And, yeah. and then you start becoming good at it, yeah. right? Because it becomes second nature. Second nature. Yeah. Like, and you, But the thing is, you still have to carry the same passion in telling the story a thousandth time as you did the first time you told it. Yeah. And that's, that's a difficult thing to do because you can, to yourself, you can feel like you're on loop, you know, but to say it with the same passion and people can sense when you speak with passion. Um, especially for speaking face-to-face. So that comes across, and I think that's a difficult thing to be able to do. But if you're really passionate about your business and the messaging of the brand, that can come across in conversation. Yeah, totally. And now back to New Water, like what's kind of the big the big goal? I mean, the, the big goal for us, I mean, when we started, Water in a Can was an alien concept. Nobody understood as to why you would put Water in a Can. They were used to carbonated drinks, fizzy drinks, sugary drinks in a can, but water in a can was a little bit out there. Um, And actually, businesses, hospitality, supermarkets were initially very difficult to enter um, because what they do, they see the product in comparison to plastic, at least, as higher operational cost. And when we started, they didn't understand that higher operational cost was offset by the message of sustainability. But that's definitely changed in the last 12 months. Mm. We've seen a big shift in that. And I think, you know, especially in this year as well, people have started to move away from single-use plastics. Um, Abu Dhabi's actually started to ban single-use plastic bags. Um, Dubai, they've just started charging 25 fills per plastic bag, no matter where you shop. So you see they just add that onto the end of your bill when you pick up a bag. Yeah, I've seen in Carrefour there's no uh, single-use plastics anymore. Yeah, exactly. And that's always the start. And I believe even in some regions of the world, they would even start to look to ban single-use plastic bottles. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen in the GCC simply because, you know, there's a there's a big divide in social economic classes, meaning there's always going to be a demand for that one dirham, one dirham 50 plastic bottle. And I think that's important to have. I think the quality of the water they use is important. Um, you know, going back to the desalination process. So what you find when you're buying water for one dirham, one dirham 50, you are using, they used, you know, this drinking water that we were referring to earlier. It's essentially taking the seawater through a process of filtration. And through that process of filtration, they produce this drinking water. But a byproduct of that is this salty brine, which in most cases, they end up pumping back into the sea, which can have a, a detrimental impact on the a detrimental impact on the oceanic life out there. So that's one thing which I think has to be looked into. How can we make 
the process of desalination more sustainable? Can we use green energy to power it? Because it's a massively energy um, consuming process. Um, and what can we do with this salty brine byproduct that's actually has some sort of um, use for it? And there's some research going into, into what we can do with that. Um, but I think, you know, as a brand, we will continue to push the message of sustainability. And because of that, products, beverages in a can will continue to grow within the market. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think the, the outside of that, I think like pushing the importance of drinking high quality water yeah. with its respective minerals and, and, and things like that is also just so key because I think like we're all just blindly drinking, you know, or, yeah. or three, four liters of, of And people water. think that's good for you. People think that's quality hydration. Yeah. Um, and, and it's then, an education uh, thing, right? Yeah, it's an education thing. And it's, you know, the education piece is difficult because you have to keep pushing it out there. You're not going to get it done with a couple of, you know, social media posts out here or there or email newsletters. It's just not going to happen. It's a process of continuing to do. We've been doing it now for two years. Um, I mean, you're doing 100K run, right? Yeah. So like, you know, the water that you drink, especially throughout that process, is is critical to be able to maintain health, the hydration, the quality of the hydration is key. So for you to have to drink quality mineral water is massively going to affect your level of performance. Yeah, and just for... for you know, for listeners to understand this, like when I run for, I don't know, let's say I run for two hours, yeah. whether it's on a treadmill, whether it's outside, irrespective, like the amount of, the amount of sweat yeah. that comes out of my body in order for me to like replenish that, like from, the, from a surface level, you think, okay, cool. I'm just going to drink, you know, my filtered water yeah. and I'll drink two liters of that and I'm good to go. And then I wake up the next day and I'm like, Oh, I still don't feel good. Yeah, you, you, know? you even sometimes have a headache. You have a headache. Um, you, you you feel dehydrated. Like your mouth is yeah. still dry. You feel dehydrated. You feel low on energy. Exactly. Your your muscles feel sore than they yeah. should be because if you don't get that potassium, magnesium, etc., yeah, um, sodium, then you know your body's going to suffer. Yeah, exactly. And I think most people assume just by drinking, you know, one and a half liters of water, they're getting quality hydration. Yeah. So. We're still working on that education piece and it's something that we're pushing out in terms of a message but you have to have quality mineral water in order to be able to actually replenish those minerals you lost in any form of exercise especially living in a in a climate like the gcc where yeah. you don't necessarily even need to be doing exercise to be able to you know work up a sweat here i mean you go outside now it's 42 degrees so you have to have between two to three liters of water a day. And that has to be quality mineral water in order to be able to maintain a healthy life. Where can people find out more about New Water and where do you deliver? Um, so we deliver across all the Emirates. Um, we're also stocked with Kibsons as well. So if you want, you can go there, do your grocery shopping as well and pick up a box of New Water. Um, and you know our direct-to-consumer website allows us to speak about our messaging. We have a blog there as well, which we write about sustainability and the benefits of drinking from an aluminum can versus a plastic bottle. And our social media page focuses heavily on that messaging as well. So it's not just product, product, product based. Um, a lot of it is around the message of sustainability. And we always backlink maybe to some articles that we've seen that could be interesting to our um, audience. So that for us is important to be able to actually educate people in the region as to why we're doing what we do. And what's the website that people can... Uh, newwater.life. Newwater.life. Yeah. 
So everyone, check out New Water. If you're based in the UAE, get your hands on a can, get your hands on a box. I truly believe in this product. And, and as you've seen from and heard from previous episodes and this one, the importance of quality water and hydration is so, so important. And, and Cyrus and New Water are doing, um, doing us a great service with, with something like this. So Cyrus, thank you so much for being thank here today. Thank you for having me on.